0: If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Monday, March the fifth, 2012. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you usually skip the introduction segments, don't today because you will miss something and an opportunity to win something really cool because we're doing a listener appreciation contest today sponsored by High Mowing Seeds, which I'll tell you about as soon as I get done telling you about our sponsors of the day. We'll skip this one today because you'll miss a chance to, to win out on about $40 worth of free seeds. Two people are going to win that, and I'll throw something else in there to make it interesting as well. All right, First up today, though, sponsor of the day number one, KnifeKits.com. If you want to learn how to make knives, uh, you can go to KnifeKits.com and get basic kits and DVDs and books and instructionals and start teaching yourself tomorrow morning how to make a knife. If you already know how to make knives and you want really exotic, cool material to take your knife building to the next level, you can go to KnifeKits.com and find things like Damascus steel, uh, exotic horn handle material, and even mammoth tusk handle material like the knife that I personally wear that was made for me by Patrick over at MT Knives. We got the mammoth tusk material from KnifeKits.com, only place I've seen it available. So check them out today, from the novice to the uh, expert master bladesmith. Uh, everybody that I know that's used them has said they're great, and they have a pretty cool catalog you can request by mail too that you can page through and uh, sometimes to me that's a little bit better than uh, what we might do uh, looking online uh, next up today sawtooth tactical folks i'll tell you what uh, the reason they're called sawtooth tactical is because they're in the sawtooth wilderness of idaho veteran run veteran operated and if you want to talk about tactical that's a place you're either tactical or you're uh, under prepared let's just say that great service great stuff Magpul, uh, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, really cool titanium spork. Uh, I just uh, told uh, Jeff up there uh, that I'd comp him. I want a month of advertising. If he'd send me a couple of those titanium sporks, and we'll see what he says about that. Anyway, really great stuff, uh, and you know, always just taking care of our audience. That's the big thing with Sawtooth Tactical. Check those guys out today. Next up, High Mowing Seeds. Now, this is what I talked about. They're not a sponsor in the conventional sense. They're a supporter of the member support brigade. And they get free shipping on all orders. And I just heard from Delia over there and they want to, uh, to run a special promotion and two people will win. Uh, each winner will get a garden starter pack, uh, which will have the following seed packets in it. Uh, provider bush bean, Detroit dark red, scarlet Nantus carrot, uh, market more 76 cucumber, high mowing mild mix, which is like a green mix, a gourmet lettuce mix, a Cascadia snap pea, cherry bell radish, sweet basil, and Rosinia Calendula, and that retails for twenty-seven fifty. And you will also receive the Heirloom Vegetable Lovers uh, package, which has Detroit Dark Red Beets, French Breakfast radits, Red Russian Kale, Green Arrow Shell Peas, Yellow Crookneck Squash, rug de Hiver Red Romaine Lettuce, Boothby Blonde Cucumber, Red, Ruby Red Shard, Red uh, Colored Chatney, uh, ch- and uh brandy wine tomato that retails for twenty seven fifty. So that's really a great uh little package they put together for you guys. That comes to a retail value of about fifty-five dollars, and uh two people will win that. I'm also gonna throw in today two free membership brigade uh uh memberships worth fifty bucks apiece. So there will be four winners today. And the way that you're gonna play the contest today is the same as the way you do it all the time, basically. You're gonna send me a code word, but I'm not gonna tell it to you, you're gonna have to find out what it is. Uh You can go to HighMowingSeeds.com, HighMowingSeeds.com, and you'll see their uh, logo in the top left-hand corner of the site, and it'll say 100% organic seeds since, and then there's a year. That year is the code word. Put just the code word, the number, you know, this is the wrong one, but you would put like 1984 in the subject line. Don't do that. It's wrong. Go to the site. See what the right year is. Stick that in. Uh, Send me an email with your name and shipping address in the uh, body of the email. And I will pick two people at random to win the high mowing seeds packs. And I will pick two people at random to win a free member support brigade membership. Just our way of saying thank you for your support of the show and thanks for listening to us. Next up, remember you can support the show by uh, joining the Membership uh, Support Brigade. Uh, you get great discounts, like free shipping from High Mowing Organic Seeds and a lot of other great stuff, military, law enforcement, active duty, or prior service, also Peace Corps in there. Uh, if you um, if you want to join and you want a special discount, please send me um – Details of your service, just uh, who you are, where you did your job, or what you do right now, either one, and uh, I'll send you a special discount code to thank you for your service to our country. With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up, and uh, let's go ahead and take that first email that I got today. Again, today's is a listener feedback show. If you want to send in content for something like today, uh, we used to do these on Monday. Send me an email with a question for Jack or article for Jack or video for Jack or comment for Jack or something like that in the subject line to jack@thesurvivalpodcast.com and I will try to get your, uh, your material on the air I do probably get about three or four percent of what comes in on just because of the numbers it's several hundred a day uh, take that across a seven day week and uh, even if it was 700 right hundred a day uh, guys just you know if I do what if I did 70 of those which would be a huge long show that would be 10 percent uh, so you're, you're looking at less than one percent. Uh, that's why the call-in shows are a great way to get your stuff in, too. I probably get a good 40 to 50% of those calls on the air. So if you want to call in for a Friday show, 866-65-THINK. Uh, first question today comes in from Paul. Paul says, Hi, Jack. I just cooked up a plate of chicken heart, heart for about $1.50 a pack. My question is, awful is a real, and it's awful, O-F-F-A-L. It's what you call the innards of things like uh, poultry. is a really good source of nutrients and protein and often very cheap. Do you have any good, awful recipes? Uh, does anyone in the community? Paul, okay, well, I don't do a lot with it. Um, I am a big fan of heart. And I, I don't care if it's a chicken heart or a dove heart or a cow heart or a deer heart I think heart is one of the best and least utilized uh, things you can find out there now the only thing I'll say about really cheap chicken hearts is they've been processed in the same facilities that you know all of the other commercial chicken has been processed in so you might do well to talk to somebody that's like a local uh, provider of uh, like pastured poultry or something like that and say you know I like hearts and livers do you give them away with your birds or do you discard them and if you discard them I would be interested in buying them from you and they might be able to sell those to you very very inexpensively and get better quality but regardless um, my favorite thing to do with heart is very very simple and I really enjoy the way it comes out and if it's a larger heart like uh, like a deer heart or something you need to slice it up and cut the ventricles and all that stuff out of it trim some of the fat off of it and cut it into strips Smaller hearts, like chicken hearts, uh, dove hearts. I shoot a lot of doves every year, and I save all the hearts in one separate bag. And generally, I get about two meals out of a full season of dove heart. Those you can just do whole. Larger hearts, like uh, turkey, goose, and things like that. Cut them in half, maybe, is the better way to go. Uh, big big goose heart, maybe. Big turkey heart, maybe fourths. And uh, then you just get, uh, you want to do clarified butter with this. You can use plain old butter, but clarified butter tastes so much better. Ghee. Alright, so then you take that, you get that into your pan, you get it nice and hot, put in a handful of chopped onion, a handful of chopped garlic, about equal amounts, and saute that until they start to go clear. Throw your hearts in and cook them until they're just done. Don't overcook them, don't freak out because it's a heart. Uh, It's just like anything else out there uh, as far as a muscle. Heart is not like kidney or liver or anything like that. I also do like gizzards, and you can do gizzards much the same way. But gizzard generally I'm more of a fan of slicing them up and when I'm like roasting a bird that came with a gizzard just putting it into the pan and letting it roast in there. A gizzard can be a little tough. It cooks longer, and slower with the with the uh with the bird itself and you end up with better results. It's also great for making broths. So like when I cook like a chicken and it comes with liver and gizzard and heart, what I'll usually actually do since I only got one heart is I'll cut up the heart and the liver and the gizzard and I usually take the neck And I'll cut the wingtips off because the wingtips aren't going to give you anything to eat anyway. And I put all that into a pot uh, with some onions and some garlic and some celery. And I'll boil that until it's well cooked. And then I actually usually chop that up and give it to the dogs in their food because that's like their little you know treat thing that they get out of it. And I use that stock as the base for making gravy for my bird. And that's one of the few times that I use something called flour, right? Because I don't do much with wheat products because I'm very, very paleo. But, you know, a couple tablespoons of flour and butter roux mixed in with that, you get a really great gravy. So those are some things I do with it. I am not a fan of liver. I never have been of any stripe or flavor or taste. And I am a very open-minded person, and I have been willing to try it over and over and over again. And it always has this texture that I just don't like. So I can't really help you there. I know that my grandfather used to love chicken livers and it was probably the one way I could tolerate them. He would slice them into uh into a little bit thinner than they come. So you'd probably get about two. Well, actually you usually get like the liver like almost has like these lobes. So you kind of cut that in half and then you take each piece and you cut it long way so they're thin. And he would just roll those in flour and he would fry them till they were crisp. And I gotta admit, I could eat that. I wasn't in love with it, but I could eat that. But those are some of my thoughts. I've never really gotten into things like cooking kidneys and stuff like that. I would be willing to try it, but I don't have a big source of it or anything. But heart is something I really enjoy. Beef heart is great on the grill. Just be careful not to overcook it. Slice it in 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 the sections. Uh, clean out the you know the ventricles and stuff like that little tendons and all because they're tough it's not that I might need them they're just tough if you leave them on there and uh, then take that and like sprinkle it with like cumin uh, paprika a little chili powder a little garlic salt a little black pepper and grill that but again you want to do it till it's just done if it's just a little bit pink inside it's, it's it's perfect for heart I like it cooked a little bit more than let's say a piece of ribeye but don't overcook it it'll dry out and then it's just not good it's a dense muscle if you almost want the 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 center should be red let's put it to that to you that way and it is so tender and so uh so different as far as the density of the muscle than most things that you'll eat and uh, it is very very inexpensive and again, you might find that if you, uh, talk to some of your local producers that do things like, you know, uh, grass-fed beef and all, they may be discarding that or they may be selling it to a rendering factory or something like that. And they might be willing to sell it to you inexpensively. I think you'll find that in many instances, though, the small-scale producers will actually keep that for themselves. Uh, because it's the thing that nobody wants, but nobody gets, you know, how, how good it really is. It's kind of like, uh, Chuck Eye Steaks. Uh, a lot of times when butchers are going to keep some meat for themselves, that's what they keep uh, because nobody really goes out of their way to get it unless they understand it's basically the forward piece of the ribeye and it actually has more flavor and it grills, grills just beautifully because uh, that's a bad rap because it's called chuck. Um, so there's a lot of things like that that are uh, you know, really good and uh, producers or cutters or butchers often reserve them for themselves and they're considered like a poor man's food. But heart, heart is the big one for me. Let's take another one here. And this one comes to us from Russ. And Russ says, survivalist prepper, environmentally aware, or unwashed hippiness. Call it what you want, but folks from various backgrounds have an understanding that a big shift is coming. Keep up the great show. Uh, So here we go from Russ. And Russ sends me this article from the National Young Farmers Coalition. And it is called Urban Agriculture on the Rise. This is like one of those things that actually gives us some hope. Interested in the potential of urban ab- agriculture, a recent study by Turner Environmental Law Clinic and Emory University School of Law offers an in-depth look at urban agriculture programs in various cities around the United States, and there's a great template for people hoping to expand urban farming in their area. The study, also sponsored by Georgia Organics, is one of the most comprehensive studies of urban farming policies across the country. Some of the cities mentioned in the report have been quick to find ways to help urban ar- uh, agriculture thrive in the city, while others are still struggling to identify the best ways to encourage the growth of urban farming. This wide variety of conditions in different cities demonstrates that there is no single best policy to encourage urban agriculture, but rather each city needs to develop its own policy based on its own needs. Actually, I could give you one. I could give you a policy. Get out of people's freaking way. Quit getting in the way. Let people do stuff. We'll get some more into this here in a minute. It's going to be interesting the way that these uh, emails dovetail together today. One example of a city where urban agriculture is well established is Portland, Oregon. In 1975, the Portland Department of Parks and Recreation started the City Garden Program. Through this program, farmers can rent land and receive the materials necessary to start their own garden. Other programs by Portland Department of Parks and Recreation is called Produce for the People. This program uh, links community gardens with local emergency food agencies to provide individuals and families... In need with fresh, healthy local produce. It has helped to donate over twenty five tons of fresh produce to emergency food providers since nineteen ninety-five. Even with well established and popular p- program like Portland's, the city is looking for ways to expand and improve urban farming practices. For example, Portland's Urban Food Zoning Code Update Project Advisory Group. Okay, there's gonna be some questions about what happens if we downsize government uh, later in the show today. When we get to that question, I want you to remember what I just said. I'm going to say it again. Portland's Urban Food Zoning Code Update Project Advisory Group. That just sounds like it's calling to be downsized to me. is revising its zoning code to address community gardens, farmers markets, and urban food production. Now, here's what people would say. Well, Jack, look what they're doing. They're rezoning things so that people can grow. Uh, Again, government seldom... Uh, fixes any problem did it itself did not first create. The only reason it has to do this is because it told people they couldn't do this in the first place. Um, You can read the rest of the article if you want to. It goes on to talk a little bit about Baltimore and Detroit. Basically, Baltimore is somewhere in the middle of, you know, Portland, it's making a little bit easier, but not quite as much as Portland is. And Detroit, basically, it's almost impossible, but people have said, screw it, and they're just doing it anyway, and doing it just flying in the face of, there's there's really not a lot that says you can, there really isn't said you can't, nobody knows what to do, so people said, screw it, and they're doing it. I think that's great, and I think it is indicative here that we are seeing people kind of rally together and start to do this stuff, and I think it's encouraging, but I also think it's worrying, and I'll tell you why it's worrying. It proves that we're right. When you start to see more and more of this happening, it is people realizing, hey, look, um, the, the economy's not coming back the way they tell us it is. The, the manufacturing jobs are not coming back. We need to do something for ourselves to feed ourselves, and we need to do something to create jobs. It's actually a very good thing, but government, as usual, keeps getting in the way of it. I have another very similar story I'm going to jump ahead to because they fit together well here with kind of this theme. Here we go. New proposal. New proposal could grow rooftop farming in New York City. And this is on Fox News. It might be hard to think of a place like New York City as farmland, but rooftops all across one of the most populated metropolitan areas in the world could soon become fields of green if an environmental proposal gets a thumbs up. The proposed zoning changes would allow more greenhouses to be built on commercial buildings and permit more open-air farms on both commercial and residential spaces all to provide the development of local urban food production and help grow jobs. Quote, this proposal is part of a larger proposal called Zone Green, which makes a package of zoning changes that would make it easier for people to make existing and new buildings greener. Why do I think it's going to have large costs associated with permits to get these things done? And it's really revenue enhancement, but... I'll try not to be too pessimistic. Howard Slaken, Director of Sustainability and Deputy Director for Strategic Planning for the Department of City Planning in New York, says, all right, again, there's gonna be a question about government and what happens if we downsize it. Howard Slaken, Director of Sustainability and Deputy Director for Strategic Planning for the Department of City Planning in New York. Okay. The proposal would remove obstacles that exist in zoning to doing certain things that we know people want to do today, and rooftop farming is one of those. Slaken says there are buildings in and around New York City that have large flat roofs. <laughs> Gee, we needed somebody with his title to figure that out. Particularly in industrial neighborhoods where a rooftop greenhouse would not interfere with any other building systems. In other words, people in the rich areas don't want to look at a greenhouse. That's, that's what that means. But in the poor areas, we can have greenhouses. I Uh, There are people who already are doing this today, but they run into a zoning height limit or zoning floor area limit, he says. One example of rooftop farming success is Gotham Greens in Brooklyn, which yields over 100 tons of produce a year, selling to local grocers and restaurants. Owners say they are in support of the zoning changes so they can expand and build more rooftop gardens as well as see other businesses thrive. On this system we're not using any soil, we're using hydroponic based form of agriculture. Varjee Prairie, co founder and CEO of Gotham Greens explains this is a very sterile environment here and helps ensure the highest quality of food safety, so our specific setup meets the highest strictest food safety standards. Uh, I'm not worried about shipping sterile, dude, when you're doing gardening. In fact, I think that's the wrong way to go, but if you want to do it, that's fine. Puri says this produce is among the highest quality in New York City because it's harvested when it's ripe and grown only a few miles away from someone's plate or a supermarket shelf. That I completely agree with. You can read the rest of this article if you want to, but here's what it comes down to. All over America, people are fighting for the right to do something that should never have been restricted in the first place. Grow their own freaking food and either eat it or sell it to their neighbors. Um, these, the, these are some examples here of government waking up to a reality. that it better allow this stuff because it's going to save their ass long term. They're not doing this because they're nice guys. They're not doing it because most of them think it's a good idea. They're doing it because they're starting to ask themselves a question. What happens when the shit hits the fan. Th- that's really what this urban gardening, urban farming movement is about, is people realizing that the shift that I keep talking about is coming. The shift where America stops being the number one dog in the world, economically speaking. Our days as the number one economic power in the world are coming to an end. I don't say that with any joy or any I told you so or any happiness at all, but it's true. It's true and all the forecasts show it to be true. And it actually makes sense after as long as we've run our economy stupidly based on debt the way we have, that, that someday that that has to occur. And then when we start looking at developing nations like China and India and the body count they have alone and the willingness they have to do work that we won't anymore uh, and the ability they have to do that and a tyrannical government that will force people that don't want to work to do it, um, it just makes sense that eventually that economic shift is going to occur. And if we weren't living in a fascist economy, if we were living in a capitalist economy, it might not. But we're living in a a, a, a plutocracy. We're living in a place where the people that control the money make the rules. And they're making the rules to keep ensuring that they get more and more money, and they're devaluing all the money in our pockets. The inflation is a tax. It's a tax on all of us. And this urban farming, is, is unrelated as it seems, is part of that because what's happened is we've so killed off economies that the people that are doing this are often people that – they're like, okay, I, there's nothing else I can do but I got this piece of dirt or I got this building with a roof on it that I could use and I could start – and maybe I can make some money. Or maybe at least I'll be able to eat tonight and I won't have to worry about feeding my kids. And all over America, people are putting gardens in front yards and backyards and on rooftops and in greenhouses and doing – and just all types of things. But it's not just a back-to-the-land movement. It's far more mainstream than that now. And it's building momentum. And it's both good, because at least we're getting there. We're not going to wait till the last minute to do it. But it's bad because it shows a mass awareness of the shift. And again, that's a, that's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. One, the mass awareness. And I think it was, we're getting to a critical mass. That's why we're having all these TV shows and these news spots and all this other stuff. And they keep making us out to be insane. But, you know, first they ignore you, then they mock you, then they violently resist you, and then what happens? Then they accept that what you're saying was always true, and of course we already knew that. And they pretend like they never did any of the denying, the opposition, or the mocking when they beat on the doors of the ark to try to get in when the rain falls, right? So that's what we're starting to see is a mass shift of awareness that this is a problem. And as I said, it's interesting how these things can all come together in a single uh, week's worth of emails, even though they seem unrelated. Because the next one seems completely unrelated, but it is completely in conjunction with resource shortages and this shift. When I start telling you things like, we're gonna run out of water for agriculture. Not, you won't be able to turn your sink on and get a glass of water to drink, but agriculture is gonna be massively pressured by a lack of water through things like, uh, the, the, uh, the draining of the Ogala aquifer and how that is shrinking and how it's a fossil aquifer and it's not coming back. And there's a massive fossil aquifer over in China that is experiencing the same effect. There's these towns on the edge of the Ogala uh, Aquifer in Texas where they had farms for years and years and years, 50 years. And they, they, it doesn't rain there. But how did they get the farms to grow well? they drill a really deep hole down into this aquifer, which is like an underground sea of fresh water. And they pump the water out. Well, if you say know, it's draining, well, there's still billions and trillions. And it's, the, it's the biggest reserve of fresh water in the world. It's still down there. But... <laughs> Think about when a lake begins to go go low in the summer when it doesn't rain. Does the middle of the lake just drain down to nothing? No. What happens is the shorelines begin to retract. So all of these places that are on these little arms, you gotta think about this, this aquifer doesn't look like a round, like, people draw lakes in a round circle. They're never round. They have all these arms and, you know, creek channels and stuff like that. And a lot of these people are like in what would be considered a cove of a giant lake. Well, that cove is now dry and those towns are drying up. And there's more and more pressure. Then we have a drought, and that puts more pressure. And then people try to start growing corn and turn it into fuel instead of food, and that puts more pressure. And then we erode the soil so that they hold less water. That puts more pressure. And what happens? Eventually, one state sues another state successfully, makes them drain a reservoir and kill fish, millions of fish. This is probably millions of fish. Just to pay the debt they owe them in water. Let me read this one to you. This is on News9, uh, dot, 9news.com, Colorado's l- uh, news leader. Um, Burlington, dead fish are piling up and we used to be one of Colorado's most valuable reservoirs. The fish at Bonnie Reservoir, Neil Idelia, are the casualty of a 2003 Supreme Court decision Colorado was forced to honor. The ruling says Colorado owed the state of Kansas billions of gallons of water under a decade-old water rights deal called the Republican River Compact. Since state officials started draining Bonnie Lake's water in the fall of 2011 because of the decision, thousands of fish have died at the reservoir. Last week, workers from the Federal Bureau of Reclamation... Again, I just want you to hear all of the government involvement all the way through this show for when I get to this guy's question about downsizing. go The Federal Bureau of Reclamation. Do we need one of those? I don't know that we do. Which owns Bonnie's land in cooperation with the state of Colorado had to unclog the drain from the dam using pitchforks because so many fish had piled up. Backhose then buried the fish under the reservoir soil. It's probably the most productive thing about this. It'll be fertile. Uh, Colorado State Engineer Dick Wolf says the practice has taken place sometimes every other day to keep water flowing to Kansas. Wolf says his department has worked with the Bureau of Reclamation to humanely bury the fish, because you don't want to inhumanely bury a dead fish, uh, so they would not become a health hazard or a visual problem at the lake in the long term. Knowing they would drain the lake, l- lake last year, state officials try to get fishermen to catch as many fish as possible by taking away catch limits. Why don't you let them use gill nets then? If you, I mean, if you just go in there and just let's net them out, man. Uh, why don't they go in there and electroshock the damn things and at least use the resource? But no. Uh, instead, what they did quote We're trying everything we could," uh, Wolf said, We even got advice from PETA about how to euthanize the fish. So when the government doesn't know what to do with a bunch of fish, they they turn to PETA. <sighs> who are supposed to be for the ethical treatment of animals, and ask them, how do we kill? Because if anybody knows how to kill animals, it's PETA. Trust me, uh, you can check out the Penn & Teller stuff on that if you'd like to. I'll link to that today for you uh, on a YouTube video with Penn & Teller showing you how many animals PETA kills. Ultimately, Wolf decided against that tactic, the guy has a brain at least, and said in order to keep the water flowing to Kansas, workers had to clear the outlets and bury the fish. I know everybody tried to get the fish out of here, he said. They did as much as they could uh, as was practical to get out. He also says wildlife like eagles and other birds of prey have helped clear some of the fish. Fishermen who have collected some of the last walleye and crop in the lakes of the scene is being tough to watch. you want to read the rest of the article, you can. There's even a video there you can watch watch on it. Um, It's a fairly long article. So how's this relate to urban farming and the shift? Uh, do you understand what happened here? One state successfully sued another state under an agreement from 1950 something or 1940 something. It's decades old and said, you, you owe us, well, one. 1942 was when this was passed, the, this uh, Republic River Compact. It said, you owe us water. And the other state had to take a beautiful multi-million dollar uh, reservoir. That it was a great natural resource that was great for the environment that provided habitat. All the, all the government wants to save the environment. save the, They just drained a freaking lake. They just drained the lake. How much wildlife habitat was lost? How much revenue for the state was lost with this? Because one state basically through the court system just successfully went to war and won against another state and said, give us the water now here is where the system falls apart. And I guess bureaucrats and government officials just can't think this far. So they drain the reservoir and it brings the river up and all of that water goes to Kansas. And Kansas gets its water for a while. Now, God forbid during this, if it should Poor rain or something like that, but let's just say it doesn't in that part of the country. It doesn't tend to get a lot of rain. There's not a lot of flooding concerns there. Let's just say that doesn't happen. What happens when the reservoir is fully drained and the river just resumes its natural flow? Now, when you dam up a river, there is no doubt that less water ends up downriver than upriver for a while. And even once it kind of reaches equilibrium point, uh, that can still be true to a degree. But most of the water, once the reservoir is full, that goes in other than what's lost to evaporation or what's used as being pumped out to use for drinking water or irrigation, most of the rest of the water just goes out the other side. If you completely plucked it off, then it would flood and then it would go around and it would cut new river channels in. See, this is only a short-term solution. What happens when the water is completely drained and the river goes back to its normal state of flow? Do you think that Kansas is going to get all the water that it wants forever and in perpetuity then? Or do you think that the river, when it goes back to its normal rate of flow, will go back to a state where it doesn't have all this extra water that's being drained from the reservoir, and it will drop to lower flow levels? And then what's Kansas going to do? Hey, jerks. Hey, jerks. You still owe us more water. You got any more dams on that river? Uh, what about what about any dams you got that are preventing other like small tributaries? Where's our water, jerks? We want our water. Tell me there's not a shift when Kansas and Colorado have to go to war for water, and that's what they're doing. They're not doing it with guns; they're doing it in the court system. But it's exactly what I said would happen. Water is becoming such a valuable commodity, and it's 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 just not going to get any better. It's just like – it's not like this fixed the problem. This actually probably will exasperate the problem long term because now precedent's been set, right? In spite of all the government's talk about taking care of the environment, we'll destroy a resource, a beautiful lake, so that one state, state can pay its water debt to another state. We'll destroy habitat. Now, I actually have a kind of a solution here that would help. They have all of this infrastructure in there. They have all these like, fjords and things that were created by this lake. They could actually go in there and put in about fifty small lakes, more like big stock ponds, a couple acres apiece here and there, and turn the whole thing into like a wilderness preserve. And it would actually provide an amazing environment. It would. It would take and hold back very little water, comparatively speaking. And multiple small dams are actually much more uh, efficient and reliable and less taxing on the overall flow than one big giant one. So uh, unencumbered by bureaucratic nonsense and an all-or-nothing solution, because they want to turn it into like a horse-riding place or whatever, and you could do that with lots of little ponds, right? You could create all these – see, when you take bureaucracy out of the way – you start to see solutions that normally people don't see. You start to say, actually, well, what would be best here? What would be the best solution for everybody? So obviously that would be we don't drain the frickin' dam. We don't drain the dam. That would be the best solution. Okay, dam has been drained now. It's too late for that. Then you, then you bring in somebody looking for a solution. Well, let's, let's change the entire organization. Let's create this multi-pronged approach where we're holding actually a lot less water back, but we're creating massive amounts of shoreline and habitat and places where people can have recreation and things like that. You know, uh, the the type of thing that government should be doing with public lands, uh, creating these environments. We can have some government. I'm not completely anti-government, but uh, just keep this in mind as we get to a question later into the today's show. Switching gears though, for the sake of variety in a show like this, I got a gun question here. Uh, from Michael. Michael says, "My wife mentioned it's time to get a revolver since I'll be traveling a lot for my new job. I already have a Marlin lever action 357 Magnum, so I want to stay with the 357 Magnum model. My wife is able to fire the Marlin 357 Magnum lever action without any trouble. What's your opinion between Smith and Wesson and Ruger's 357 mag versions? Knowing a female will be firing one for home defense, concealed carry in Maryland is a pipe dream, so it isn't in the equation. Proud MSB member, Michael in Maryland. Uh, Michael, here's." first of all what I'm going to tell you Um, I I don't even Smith and Wesson and Ruger both make great revolvers go to the gun store handle them and whichever one you get a better feeling for whichever one handles better for you naturally pick that one I mean you you can really flip a coin there it's just I I don't nitpick between guns like that guns are either good or they're junk and if they're good buy what you like on the question about a female firing it I I think this gets overthought by a lot of people I, I really do um you know, the 357 does it have more bite than the 38 special? Yeah. In an actual home defense situation where you're 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 you're, you're shooting someone to protect yourself and your family, are you going to even notice it? And the answer is no. So, given that these both of these revolvers can fire a 38 special. Uh, standard 38 special loads have very, very low recoil signature. Then there's no reason that you can't practice with those. It's more economical anyway. Uh, and you'll do a better job of learning trigger control and what have you. And firing it occasionally with some actual full magnum loads is not a bad idea. But I don't, I don't perceive any type of a problem. You asked between Smith and Wesson and Ruger, but you didn't say whether you're talking about like a compact gun or a full size revolver. I'm assuming based on your comments about concealed carry not being in the equation, you're looking at a full-size revolver. So the weight there is also going to be very helpful. Now, all of that said, um, is that your best bet for home defense? I don't know that it is. Um, in fact, I would tell you that the three fifty seven lever gun that she can already shoot well is probably a better home defense gun. I I don't know what it is with people that think about, like, oh, home defense, want a handgun. Um, you carry a handgun... We're carrying a rifle or a carbine or a shotgun is not practical or possible. Because with a rifle or a carbine, it's much more natural to point. You have a much higher hit ratio. Everything gets better and you have more velocity, more knockdown power, even with 357. a three fifty seven. A three fifty seven out of a six inch barrel and a three fifty seven out of a let's say a eighteen or twenty two inch barrel, depending on what which one of those uh lever guns you have, is a big, big difference. A three fifty seven Magnum out of a rifle carbine length barrel, has the same muzzle velocity and energy of the old 357 Maximum that was discontinued in the Dan Wesson revolvers because it burned out the throats of the revolver. Uh, it's it's taken things to a new level. So I don't have a problem with the 357, uh revolver for home defense. I'm just saying I don't know that you need it for that. Right. I don't know that you're actually better off with it. I do think you're better off ha you know, if you want to get a three fifty seven revolver to go with that rifle, I think that's a great idea. And then when you are both home, you've got two guns instead of one. That's another good thing. But for home defense, honest to God, the best thing you could probably get is a youth model eight seventy shotgun in 20 gauge and loaded up with bucker slugs. Um if you have actual situation where someone is in your home and you feel the need to shoot you want a fight stopper not a dissuader not an injurer and not necessarily you want them dead but that's usually the result but you want when you pull the trigger the 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 threat is done it's absolutely over done and finished and shotguns do that 12 gauge does it even better but 20 gauge is so sufficient for in you know inside the home ranges and very easy to learn to shoot. So I'm not trying to dissuade you on your choice. I'm just saying, as an ideal home defense tool, it's not a revolver. It really isn't. Um It. it, it I don't. I, I don't really know why people think that other than you know it's a short barrel, so he can come around a wall or something like that. But all I got to say is, in every instance where a homeowner has defended themselves. It's never been like the movies. Typically, it works this way. Somebody's pounding on the door and being an obvious idiot, and they wait for the door open, and they shoot them. Or the person gets into the home, the homeowner grabs the weapon, retreats into a protected area, and waits. And if the guy doesn't leave, boom, and he should have left. Right, that I mean, that's that's what actually happens. So all of these like Cagney and Lacey, you know, with the chicks with their guns. Remember in the '80s that show, and what's that fat guy Cannon shooting a helicopter out of air with a 38 snubbers? All this Hollywood shit, right? And I don't know why I'm having like a time travel moment back to some of that idiocy. There's plenty of it still around. It just isn't how things work. So, you know, the gun is fine. Uh, I don't really have an opinion between the two. I have no concerns about your wife being able to shoot the, the weapon well. And I would say teach her to shoot it with thirty eight Specials. But I would also really tell you both, go get a good defensive uh, uh, handgun or defensive carbine course. Take something geared toward home defense. There's plenty of it out there. Um, and you might start leaning towards some other options. But, hey, anything's better than a sharp stick. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Real quick one here for you, just a little announcement. Uh, Chris uh, from the audience uh, out of Arizona wanted me to uh, make a quick announcement. Uh I had Dave Whittinger on the show not long ago from All Things Plants, which is an amazing website with a great forum and database and everything. So here's what he said. Hey uh, Jack, I heard your podcast with Dave Whittinger uh with very little convincing. I got Dave to start up a permaculture forum at allthingsplants.com. What's more, Dave asked me to moderate the permaculture forum, so I'm really trying to put some stuff, push some stuff your way, both to TSP and your YouTube channel. Thanks for all you do. You've helped change my family's lives for the better. AllThingsPlants.com slash forums slash views slash permaculture is the link. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you guys so you can check out that permaculture forum. So uh, you know, it's, sometimes you say, "Well, why would you be building up somebody else's forum? Don't you have one of your own?" Of course I do, but a wider net cast catches more fish. And what we have is a very symbiotic relationship with Dave, where hey, uh, people that come there and learn about permaculture can receive, you know, information about resources from Survival Podcast and from our forum and from our community and our YouTube channel, and vice versa. So uh, check out their forum and maybe just, you know, jump on in there, join Dave's forum, make a post or two. The way that you get a new board up and running where people come in and start participating is to have a lot of activity uh, going on in that board. So check it out. It is a cool place. Uh, This one comes in from Ross. Ross says, Hi, me again. I just listened to episode 610 for the first time. That's a bit of an older one since we did 852 today. And the words you spoke really struck home with me. I wrote it down while I listened a second time because I want to make it my own personal credo. I also wanted to share this and let you know how much I appreciate your show and what you stand for. I would like to call this Spirko's Resolve. And here is Spirko's Resolve, according to Ross anyway. I am aware. I have the ability to think. I have the ability to act. I have the ability to protect myself. I have the ability to protect my family. I am greater than the problem. I know the solution. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I am in control. And he says, thank you for everything you do and stand for Jack Ross. Hey man, I think that's cool. And maybe I need to go back and listen to that episode myself. And maybe the next time that we ever have a day without an episode, 610 is the episode to recommend. Uh, but yeah, that sounds like me. Uh, that sounds like what I've been trying to teach you guys. And I like that. Spirit goes resolve. Uh, I'm glad somebody else did it because I think it would be arrogant if I put it together and called it that on my own. Uh, but Ross, thanks, thanks for, uh, for bringing that to us. Uh, next one here is uh, from Jen, and Jen says, I'm sure someone else has sent this to you by now, but just in case, GBTV, which is Glenn Beck Television, has a new series about preppers and life off the grid, Independence USA, and there's a story about it on the blog. She says, wondering if they're going to be a bit more realistic and prepper-friendly than the TV shows that shall not be named. Doomsday preppers and doomsday bunkers, is that what you're talking about? Um, anyway, when I, when I looked at this, I actually expected it to be pretty good. I expected it to present Preppers in a pretty solid light uh, without any extremism, uh, but the trailer honestly could be on Discovery or NatGeo, Uh And I expect more from Glenn Beck, because, I mean, Glenn is into this stuff. He's like, this is the right thing to do, but it's like they still had to go out and find some people, and I, it seems like the producers led them into certain things. Um, you can watch the trailer yourself. I'll put a link to The Blaze where this is being advertised, but you know, here's the thing that strikes me in these shows. If... Mom goes out and shoots a turkey, and then they create a reenactment of that, but it actually happened, I'm okay with it. When they create a reenactment, or it never happened, and they create it in a way that's just stupid, and anybody with like two brain cells that are actually firing between each other would know it, it bugs me. So in this thing, and the the guy seems like, now I don't want to say the guy's an idiot in the the pilot or the trailer or whatever, because he might not be. I have realized, because I know people and I've seen what Nat Geo's done to them, that you can't judge the person based on the episode because they'll be presented in a way that they really didn't present themselves. But the guy came across like a frickin' dumbass because they're like out camping to practice their skills. And Mom's like, "Uh, what food did you bring? He said, I didn't bring us any food. Hunger will finely tune our hunting skills. Well, that's stupid. And no pioneer, no scout, no one that ever went out and lived off the land left with no food. You, you took what you could, because when you have food, finding more is relatively easy, and when you're starving, it's actually hard. So that was probably all bullshit, but God, it made him look like an idiot. Then, he and the boy go out deer hunting, and they look like they know what they're doing. They got a blind setup, they're in camo, they're archery hunting, looks like they get a deer, probably got a deer, looked like they were well put together. But then they're like, you know, like they put this little drama into it. Like, the girls are back at camp probably, you know, diddling around or whatever. So mom gets up and goes, get the gun. And they take a shotgun and they go walking through the woods. And when she shoots this shotgun, you look at the head position and all and go, this person's probably never fired a gun before in her life. And she shoots this turkey and the turkey's like gobbling and flapping its wings. It's like, blah, oh, blah, 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 blah. Like, he's like standing there and they're like, look, there's a turkey. And they're like 15 feet away from it and they just, you know, shoot it. And it's just stupid. Okay, I will bet a million dollars that that was a domestic turkey that looks like a wild turkey that somebody brought over there and, and just put there and they just assassinated the turkey. I don't really care about that, but the way it's presented, and I'm thinking Glenn should do better than this. Glenn should do better. There is a place, there is a market, there's a sweet spot for someone to go do this the right way. For someone to put together a documentary on preppers that doesn't show the most extreme people, that doesn't show the people putting their kids in a freaking gas mask, that doesn't show reenacted bullshit, or at least if you're going to reenact it, make it look real and only reenact what actually happened. If mom can actually shoot a turkey and you want to show how that happens, that's fine. But I don't think this lady could shoot anything other than a stocked bird sitting in front of her. I really don't. And And, and, and of all people... So I'm getting to the point now where I'm like, I don't even care anymore. I don't care. I don't care about doomsday bunkers. I don't care about the colony. I don't care about independence USA. I don't care about off-grid this. I don't care about doomsday that. I don't care anymore. I know I'm supposed to care. I know I'm supposed to care because this is my industry, right? And this is all good for things and I, you know, we can work with you. No one out there doing this. And from what I can see, and I will watch it, I guess I have to become a member or something because he sells access or something, um, but I'll look at it long term and see if there's more, and if this is just like some way that, I don't know, virally, if there's going to be more good quality content there, but it just, the feeling I get is just another pile of crap, and you have to start asking yourself, I guess we're in the ridicule stage, right? So I guess violent opposition is next. And then accepting it as fact and telling us, oh we already knew. <laughs> I, I I don't know, man. It, it just it just bugs me. And I I wish that someone would do this right. And then I think about it. I think about it. And I realize plenty of people are. It's it's on YouTube. There's thousands of us out there sharing with other people what we're doing, and none of it, not one bit of it. Looks like Doomsday Preppers or Doomsday Bunkers or this Independence USA crap or anything else like that. None of it has a guy sitting in front of his family with a chalkboard saying, when every shit hits the fan, everybody's going to be trying to get to us and we need to have a way to get to hell. None of it looks like TV. None of it looks like TV. And that tells you something. That That's how far from reality they are. And it tells you that all of you content producers that are out there saying, this is what we're doing to Homestead. This is what we're doing to prepare. This is what we're doing to grow our own food. This is how we store food. This is how we do this. This is how we do that. You're doing very, very important work. You're doing very important work, and you need to keep doing it. So, switching gears again. This one comes in from Lane. And Lane asked the question, There's so many people that can't conceive of a world without government. Ask. I agree with the need to downsize the federal government. Let's stop there for a second. So, Lane and I agree, government's too big. Okay? So we know that we have to do it. But, how would you answer the first, these two issues? One, when we downsize, we reduce the number of wage earners. Where do they work? Federal government equals 40% of the economy. Okay. (sighs) I I almost want to go back to those articles and read those people's titles and, and, and crap again just to make my point, but I'm not going to. You heard it. I pointed it out then so you would remember it. Okay, the fact that the federal government equals 40% of the economy is the problem. It is the problem. We have to ask ourselves, where did people work before the federal government was 40% of the economy? You know, what, what percent of the economy was the federal government in 1955? It's a very small segment uh, compared to today. The other thing is, where would they work? I don't know. Maybe they'd go find something productive to do. Maybe if the government got out of the way, the private sector would take off and there'd be all of these opportunities. But I want to be fair. Uh, Not even Ron Paul is for, okay, uh, tomorrow we're just going to cut the government by 50% and that's going to be it. It, You know, Ron Paul's cut is a trillion dollars over the first three years. That still leaves a huge, government apparatus in place way bigger than it needs to be yes we're in a point now where we've made people so dependent on this system that we have to dismantle and deconstruct it piece by piece the problem is even when we do pull a piece of it apart like it's like uh the terminator right remember the terminator the one that like when it got shot the hole just sealed up you know when it it got frozen it hit the ground and it just all came back together and but this this terminator keeps getting bigger so even when we deconstruct like a multi-million dollar component of government, like two multi-million dollar components just take its place and continue to expand. So when you hear people that are like, just like want to just get rid of everything, they really, most of them anyway, really don't. That's like the goal. But that goal could be five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the line, or more. But you gotta go to that level of pull just to, just to stop this growth. It can't keep going on that. Now, I like this one too. When we downsize, we reduce benefits for many. Where do they eat? Um, well, the millions of people abusing the system get their asses their job or they go hungry. That's simple. But if we could reduce all of this interference, okay, so where would they work? I don't know, maybe they'll work in an urban farm. Because if we got the government, we downsize government and stop doing stuff like that, well then maybe. Just maybe, then there would be more of those. And then that would, see, and this is what people I think don't understand about an economy. We've been lied to for so long, that like the government's job is to fix the economy. That's not the government's job. The government's job is to ensure that commerce can occur. And to assure that when commerce does occur, that if one side violates contract, the contract gets enforced. That's the government's job not to tell commerce how to work or when to work or what to do or what to manufacture or what to sell or how much to make or what components to use or where to get their materials from or who to buy from or who to sell to. Do you know what all of those things are? Fascism. That's fascism. See, we've also been lied to. Those of you who haven't heard me talk about this before are going to have a hard time with that word. You probably already did today. Fascism is not concentration camps and killing people. That's something a fascist government did I'm not a denier of the Holocaust. I'm not an idiot, right? I might deny global warming caused by CO2 because I have scientific evidence for that, but I have a lot of photographic and empirical evidence and historical evidence for the Holocaust, so I don't deny the Holocaust. That occurred. But that's that, Germany didn't do that because they were fascist. Germany did that through their fascist government. Mussolini was a fascist. Happily said, hey, I'm a fascist. The fascist is a good way. Sold the idea to the Italian people, Uh, Were there people murdered and killed in Italy during the war? Sure there were. There were people murdered and killed in the United States during the war and imprisoned in the United States during the war. It's about everybody of Japanese descent was rounded up and put in a camp. Now, we didn't do to them what the Nazis did, but we still took their freedom, right? So you can't say that that equals fascism. Or maybe we can, because that's what we have here. In a fascist state, you have neither socialism in its pure form or capitalism. You have a combination you have a system where losses are public and profits are private, where the government tells the industry what to do, how much to do, where to get their stuff from, who to sell it to, what to set the price at, blah, 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 blah. And then they take the divisions of the classes, like the low class, the middle class, the upper class, and they use those divisions and stratification levels to an advantage to further the needs of industry and in the state. That's where we exist today. So, if we stopped doing that, then maybe people would figure out what to do with themselves. How many small businesses could be created if government got out of people's ways? If government didn't go in and go, you can't have a business in this house here. Well, why not? I don't want cars parking up and down the road. There's already restrictions on how many people that can park here. I just want to, I just want to run, run this little bit. No, you can't do that. You need a permit. You need a, a, a license. You need this. You need that. The cost of it. And the guy just goes, screw it. I'm going to go work for Walmart. Yeah, and then (laughs) I mean, and that just has a. And what people don't understand is, every time we kill one one entrepreneur, one little one-man entrepreneurship, we probably kill five or six or seven jobs. Because that guy is going to have more money than the average person. Do you know what he's going to do with a lot of it? Especially the one or two-man shops, spend it right back into his local economy. That's going to, and if you got ten of those guys, that starts to further and every little business, it all starts to take over. This is how the country used to work. And in many ways, this is how it's working in China today. Not everywhere, but in a lot of places. If you want to set up a little stand selling food in China, nobody gets in your way. I have a friend, a really good friend of mine I used to work with, and he has a good friend that he went to college with. This guy had, the guy I'm talking about, the friend, not the one-off guy, uh, has a master's degree in marketing I think he's currently the director of marketing for La Quinta. He used to be the director of marketing for Virgin Airlines, and he's the guy that built the American Airlines Platinum Program. Right, this guy switched on guy. The guy that he's friends with went to the same, same education, same pedigree, same background, could be here in the United States doing the same types of things. He said, screw it. And went to, I think, he went to Malaysia, and he bought an island. Right, bought an island cheap, like a few acre island. Uh, It's not like way offshore. It's like you know, you take a like a bridge or a foot bridge or something to get there. So it's like like a mangrove encrusted island. Cleared it off. Nobody got mad because he cut some mangroves down and put in a frisbee golf course. You know, the disc golf and has golf carts and pretty girls drive you around in golf carts while you play golf and they sell beer and wine out of a cooler on the back of the golf cart. And Mike said, "Why are you doing that? Because because I can do it here." Because I can do it here. It's just not this. So there's people employed. There are people employed to take care of the grounds. People employed uh, to do the carts. People employed to sell the alcohol. Can't even get. Can't even sell the alcohol that way here. You know, it's like it's not like the people driving the golf carts are drunk. That happens here anyway, right? But there's a license for it. See, and and that's the thing. When people start saying, "Well, if we reduce the size of government, where are people going to work? How are people going to feed themselves? What about the people on welfare? What what you're what you're predisposing? is that people actually can't solve their own problems. Now, here's what we do know. If you attempt to solve problems for people and tell them that this is their solution and you tell them they have it coming to them and you give it to them and it's cost them as well, so they pay taxes, but here's the solution that's paid for with your taxes, they will expect the solution to work and when it doesn't, they will sit around and do nothing and wait for you to fix it and vote a different person in. That's how it will work. That's how it has worked. That's what's gone on. So... I think that there's a disconnect a lot of times when people speak from a smaller government libertarian mindset with people that, that can't even conceive that they could possibly work. And that is that even the anarchist libertarian doesn't want to take, except the complete moron, doesn't want to take the government gone tomorrow. We understand that, okay, if we're in a train and it's doing 250 miles an hour like one of these high speed trains and we need to stop the train we need to begin a deceleration process and slow the train down and eventually come to a complete stop we all agree the train has to stop we would like to stop the train at this point but that's not reasonable now because we're too fast and we're too close so what is the safest distance with which the train has to continue to travel at what speed of deceleration to arrive at a stop at some point If we go too far, as long as we don't crash into anything, we can always back the train up and get to where we need to be. That's the deconstruction of government. We could not shut it if you want you know, you want the blood in the street stuff, the shit hit the fan, the complete catastrophe that everybody's afraid of, shut it all off tomorrow. There'll be riots, there'll be looting, there'll be fires, there'll be people burning shit down. I mean, it will go ugly and it will go ugly fast. But here's what people like us are trying to say. That's where we're going anyway. The train is going too fast, and it's headed for a cliff. We can begin deceleration, and maybe we bump the cliff and damage the edge of the train or whatever. Maybe we stop short of the cliff altogether. Maybe the engine blows up, but the rest of the train is safe. But we've got to start deceleration now. Not we going to just throw the switch and the emergency brake. In 250 miles an hour, and you stop now. What happens? Everybody in the train splatters against the wall. Well, that's what it would be like to try to completely dis- dis- deconstruct government immediately. It has to be phased over time. And again, I want people to understand when I say I'm a libertarian, I am a minarchist libertarian. I believe there is a role of government. And the role of government is things like enforcement of contract between private pro- parties. Uh, the, the role of government is if I come to your house and steal your shit, and you're not big enough to take it back on your own, then government comes and puts me in a place called jail. And then I should have to pay restitution, not to the state, to you. If I steal like $10,000 worth of your crap and I get it fenced out and I spend the money on dope or whatever and the money's gone and I get arrested, part of my probation I'll probably get something called restitution. And generally restitution will go to the state to pay the, 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 uh, the officer who oversees my probation. right? But it doesn't help you. You're the victim here. If we're going to have a criminal pay restitution, it should go to the victim. That's a libertarian system. The government should be responsible for making people say, well, what, if we, what about roads? But let me ask you a question. If the government only focused on a few limited things, and one of them was roads, how awesome would our infrastructure be in this country? I- I'm serious. If look, uh, one guy on the blog just recently said, you know, you, you, driving costs you about two cents a mile based on the gas tax. That's such a short-sighted statement because it's not true. Because driving is not just my gas tax, right? Driving is my gas tax. It's the tolls that they do collect on top of the gas tax. It's all the money that gets pilfered into road projects and things like that. It's all the waste that goes into those projects. It's all the money, the $800 billion that was going to do these shovel-ready projects where they did things like put a guardrail in that goes nowhere. And it's all of the bureaucracy around it that we constantly pay for that we wouldn't need, that we wouldn't be paying for that could actually go to building the roads if that's what we did. But no. We want to control people's lives. We want to tell people how to live. We want to tell people what they can feed their kids for lunch, folks. I haven't put those stories on, but I've gotten a lot of them from you lately. Kids being sent to school with a home lunch. Teacher looks at it and says, that's not good enough. Takes away the kids' food, forces them to eat the food, the garbage, chicken nugget garbage. You know, it's made from like a, what do you call that? uh, That that spins around, oh, God, a centrifuge, right? You know, you don't just make nuclear material with centrifuges, you make chicken. Gook. I mean, they take the chicken and they like extract all the stuff off of it and they get the cartilage and the little bits of meat and the renderings used to go be made into animal food. And that's when we make a freaking chicken. Then we mix some, some GMO based flour in there and gook and schlick. And then we make that into a nugget and we call that healthy. And we take a kid's peanut butter sandwich away and give them a chicken nugget and send mama bill for the nuggets. This is how much freedom the government's stepping on. So I, I you know, I, I'm trying to answer this question for Lane. But at the same time, I'm trying to point out the absurdity of the question. Uh, the absurdity of the question assumes a complete dismantling of government overnight, which can't even happen. It's impossible. What we need is a scaled uh, a scaled drawdown. You know, when we had a big scaling uh, down of nuclear weapons between the Soviet Union and the United States, we didn't just, like, get rid of them all. What do you do with all the material? What happens if you take too many away before your opponent does? So it was agreed upon scaled withdrawal. And in many conflicts that's how things are done. There's times where, you know, an invading army says, Yeah, we'll even give you this territory back as part of the treaty. But they don't just leave, right? They have to scale their, 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 their retreat to make sure that things are complied upon. Or in often in situations where uh we're occupying this territory, we'll give it back to you, but uh you guys aren't ready to take it yet. And if we leave here, these people are gonna go ape shit on each other. We're actually keeping the peace. That actually, I, I know some of you guys are so anti-war, you can't conceive of that either, but that actually happens as well. Doesn't mean the war was justified in the first place, but it's the reality that was created. And that's the problem we have with government today. It's not, it's not that the intention was bad, and, and it's not that there's no useful function being performed. It's that the results are terrible. And when the results are terrible long enough, you go, okay, I get it, duh. Like So if you planted a tree, in a spot in your yard, and you did everything you thought right. You watered it, you gave it food, fertilizer, you did everything and it just died. Okay, I got a bad tree. You dig the tree up and you put a new tree in there, and the tree dies. So you say, Okay, maybe I can't grow apples in this state or whatever. So then you plant a pear tree there. Like it dies. And everything seems you everything seems right. How many trees would you plant before you just go, there's something about that spot that you can't grow trees? And you would stop trying to grow a tree there. You would try to grow something else there, or you'd plant a tree somewhere else. At some point, the human mind says, we've gone far enough. This is, this is a mistake, and maybe I don't have to turn it off, but I've got to start scaling it down. That's my view. All right, next question. Here's a gardening one, kind of a good segue into that. It comes from Robert. Robert says, I have a few gardening questions for you. First of all, I tried replanting the bottoms of six green onions, store-bought. Four of them grew and are about ready to harvest. Thanks for the tip. I was wondering if this next harvest I could just cut them with scissors and leave the roots in the ground instead of pulling up the whole thing and cutting with a knife and replanting. Yes, you can, uh, and it's actually a pretty good way to do it. My preferred method, though, is to tie, kind of hit my finger and go down into the soil about uh, about an inch and cut about an inch below the soil and, and let it grow back from there because that's where that really nice white piece of the onion is, that, that bottom inch. And if you just cut it off at the surface, you don't get that. I've also found you get better regrowth that way uh, than pulling them out because you don't disturb the, 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 the root structure that it's put down. And I'll also say to you, when you're planting your ones from the store, buy organic, because um, you're going to be less likely to have some kind of a growth retardant or something like that. I'm not really worried about residual chemicals. You're, you're starting in a new environment. It's not my concern. I'll eat a green onion that's not organic. I prefer organic, but... I will, but just because there's less likely of some type of additive added there that would in, interfere with regrowth. Uh, second, how did, you, how did your potting soil bag garden do last year? I may try it if you had any luck with it. I'm also a renter and have a, high, have a desert landscape. Could I do this on top of rocks or do the roots need to grow through the holes in the bottom of the bag into the earth? Well, if you look at my videos, you can see the results speak for themselves. I had plants everywhere. I had production everywhere. And as far as roots growing into the soil, the whole reason I did the bag garden there is it's white rock. It's quartz. There is no penetration into the soil there uh, other than some pines that have made it through some cracks and crevices. And as I pulled the bags up this year, even though I did put holes in the bottom of them and start using that soil elsewhere, I saw almost no penetration at whatsoever. In fact, the ground doesn't even look like there's anything laying there. It looks like moist, and that's it. As soon as you move the bag, and an hour later, you come back to where that bag sat for six months, It looks like nothing was ever there. So that's how bad that soil was. So it does work. And no, the plants don't need to grow through. But if you have a place where they can, by all means, make lots of holes with a big long screwdriver. Drive it down into the topsoil and subsoil and let those roots grow through. And that area can be prepped for a garden next year when you remove the bags. Dump it out. Maybe do a little bit of digging in and create a bed right there. But that didn't work where I was, and it wasn't ever going to. So yeah, it'll work for you too. Uh, third, what can be planted in the bags? My kids want the usual green beans, squash, radishes, et cetera. I would assume they would do fine. But I also want to grow corn and watermelon. I'm not sure the root structure of the bag would support them. Uh, thanks for your time and keep up the good job. Uh, watermelon works. Uh, specifically, we grew, grew like little watermelons, like the Crimson Sweets or something like that. And we had great results with watermelon. Actually, we had outstanding results. Uh, with growing watermelon in the bag gardens. Corn, I wouldn't think so. I grew a little bit of okra, and okra has kind of a similar root structure. It did not do well. Uh, it grew, but once it got to a certain point, because it couldn't expand the roots the way that it really needs to, it stunted, and I would think corn would be likely to basically get blown over. Um, you probably could do it, but I don't think it would be worth the effort. The big thing with the bag gardens, folks, is... You really need to put some drip irrigation in or some type of automated irrigation because they need to be watered, especially in the hot summer, three to four times a day because they dry out so fast. Even if you mulch the hell out of them, there's only so much material there to hold water in, uh, and it can only hold so much water, so... For me, it was a good get-by. It was not ever supposed to be a long-term solution. But as far as the result, results, you can look at my videos and the results speak for themselves. We did great with the zucchini squash. We did pretty good with tomatoes. We did good with peppers. Basil went mental there. The basil did beautifully. Uh, just about anything we tried to grow grew okay. I actually didn't get that great of results with the beans. I don't know if it's just that the potting soil didn't really give them the environment that was conducive toward uh, nitrogen-fixing rhizomal bacteria, I think, would be the big issue there. I did inoculate them. I just don't think it worked well for beans. So uh, you could try it. And I know other people have done it. and It's worked well. It might have just been too damn hot by the time I planted because I did this in, like, mid-June. When we finally got all everything moved up here and what have you. So had I planted them earlier, I might have gotten better results. Uh, next question. Steve says, Jack, thanks for your latest podcast on New Ham- from New Hampshire. Uh, on a side note, we have some raccoons that have been showing up on our duck coop in the middle of the night looking for some late-night snacks. I purchased some of the 22 Subsonic Super Coolabri ammo that you recommended on an older show. My problem is... They don't fit into a Ruger 1022 magazine because of the size of the shell. Feed them into the 1022 manually and the dark ain't easy. Do you have a recommendation for a single shot or bolt action 22 rifle that can easily fit in the super coolibri or CB short ammo? Thanks. And yes, I do. I am a huge fan of Marlin and the Marlin XT is the bolt action Marlin that is replaced by old standby, the Marlin Model 25. They're very, very similar. Uh, I think that some of the parts are probably even interchangeable. I think it was more of a a branding change than an actual parts change. Uh, They make a seven-shot clip magazine. Uh, for it uh, that you can load any anything into I used to shoot shorts in my Marlin 25 all the time out of the, the uh, magazine and it never was a problem they have a tube fed version as well I like the magazine version better uh, I know the magazine can kind of dig in your back a little bit when you have it on sling but it really doesn't, it, it's not bad at all and uh, I think that with the magazines, you have the option of having several magazines and have them loaded with different animal ammo. One thing I'm going to say on the uh, the uh, the CB caps and the shorts and what have you, if you're going to shoot something the size of a raccoon with that, get close range, headshots only. Um, I, it's not sufficient for body shots, in my opinion. There's not enough energy and mass there. A headshot on a raccoon with one of them, it'll kill it'll come stone dead. But that has to be a, a headshot thing. So look to something like a little four-power scope and a good flashlight and zero the thing at like 10 yards. And uh, that would probably be the, the, a good raccoon elimination thing. I'm going to assume the reason you're doing the CB caps instead of full-power 22 long rifle has something to do with where you live and neighbors and things like that. And if that's the case, I understand. If it's not the case, if, there's, if you're only doing it because uh, you like them, uh, I would step up with something the size of a raccoon to something like a CCI Stinger. Uh, Hollow Point, because with one of those, good heart lung shot, you're gonna have very good effects as well. As long as you can make the headshots though, and the CB caps, that's the way to go. And in a lot of like urbanish environments, suburbanish environments where you have, you can, but you really don't want any complaints. Uh, they're very, very quiet, very, very, very effective. Alright, Um next one. Comes in this question from Will. Will says, "Hey Jack, China's sitting on forty percent of the world's copper market. Who's to say they won't push for a copper-backed international currency?" Thanks, love your show, Will in Baltimore. Well, here's the thing: copper doesn't really work as a currency by itself. We could go to a tri-metallic standard which at one time was pretty much what we had in this country. Pennies were made from copper, and they were big pieces of copper. And then they had, you know, there was silver and there was gold coinage. And those were your primary means of currency. And paper currencies were backed by the gold or the silver. So the gold, you know, $20 gold note... If you went to a bank and said, give me a $20 gold piece, they would give you a $20 gold piece. No questions asked. It was on demand. The bearer on demand. Shall receive $20 in gold. You had a dollar-silver certificate, they'd give you a silver dollar. Much the way today, and I want you to really understand this. If you go down to the bank with $20 and say, I'd like $20 in coin, they would give you quarters or they would give you $20. Uh, You know, the uh, presidential dollars now it used to be Sacagawea, then it went to presidentials or whatever, or, or what have you. And they would just, it's just an exchange. One was as seen is as good as the other. That's how it used to be. Now, the problem with copper, <clears throat> I don't care how much you control, is that you need very large amounts of copper to make a currency system work. So when we look at copper and we say that it's three or four bucks a pound, let me check real quick and just I'm gonna give you a ton price of copper. So copper's like 3.88 a pound. So at a ton, you're looking at about 7,700 7, bucks in change. Let's call it eight thousand dollars. Let's go benefit of the doubt and say copper, a ton of copper, eight grand. Now you want to buy a house for 160,000 dollars. You need 20 tons of copper to back that 160,000 dollars. It's not practical if it's a standalone for a currency. Now, if we had silver and gold to the mix, we can start to get somewhere, especially if we do some things like some leveraged uh, backings. So what if copper, silver, and gold were all held in reserve at 10% of a nation's currency standard? So a nation could do the same fractional reserve against a commodity base that a bank does with a loan base. It would still cap the currency. And it would cap the currency very, very effectively. When I say I'm not really for a gold standard, I'm not for the one-to-one ratio that we used to have. But something like that is more of a commodity basket, which is more of what I'm for 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 a national currency. So the nation could hold and reserve copper, silver, and gold. And they could do that in a variety of ways, physically, contracts, what have you. And then copper would effectively allow the, the, the creation of a monetary unit 10 times in excess of its value. What would that do for copper as a currency? What would that make copper worth? Well, that would mean that right now when we take a look at the price of copper, an ounce of copper, and this is spot price. This is not really how to look at a currency style copper situation, but about 24 cents an ounce. So if we had a a a currency system, a tri-metallic currency system with a ten to one leverage ratio, a one ounce piece of copper would be worth about two dollars and forty cents in the economy. Some of you think, well, that's not good enough, but it's a lot better than what we have now. What do we have now? Right now, a dollar is backed by a dollar and five to a dollar and ten cents in debt, instead of a ten percent value of copper. And it and again, understand currency systems. You have to understand that it doesn't matter what backs a currency. It matters, do people have confidence in the currency? Will people take the currency in exchange? Does the currency have stability? And how much of the currency can be created at one one time? As long as we cap the currency, as long as we cap it, and we hold the cap, and we say, in order for the currency to expand, this must occur. So you want more money? You've got to put more gold, silver, and copper in reserve. I think a tri-metallic standard actually might be a great solution. It's one of the many solutions I'm going to be adding to the book, The Real Truth About Money. The only solution I give you in there right now is a true public currency, backed solely by the good faith and credit of the United States government, right? with no debt tied to it a greenbacker-style currency. Not because I think it's the one, because I think it, it. my intention with that book was to make you, instead of just going, this should be gold, private gold, blah, 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 and, and then you don't even think, you don't even explain how it would work to come up with ways that it will work. Everybody wants to focus on that. So I'm going to end up with about 10 different currencies in that book in its, its next revision. And one will be a tri-metallic currency standard. One will be a completely private model. No government money whatsoever. The good and the bad. Because there's good and a bad in all of these things. Anyway, folks, I have one more today. I'm going to talk about it really, really quick because I'm gone long and I need to wrap up because I've got an interview I've got to give here in about an hour. Um, but this came to me from a bunch of people, and I'm very concerned about it. Uh, and I'm going to leave it open to discussion, and maybe I'll talk about it more later. But... The House just passed a bill that will make protesting illegal at Secret Service-covered events. And it's very concerning because it's written very vaguely where they could just basically call anything that. Or they just say, like, one Secret Service guy go look after this. And as soon as they do that, it becomes covered by this. And it's written in such a way that, let's say you were protesting. And then they made it into the Secret Service-covered event and you were still there, but they didn't tell you that you could be arrested and put in jail for up to a year. And if you do certain other things, you can be there for like 10 years. And they put it like, basically it makes it illegal to trespass on the grounds of the White House. So that's to, to make it look like it's not that big a deal. But all of this other stuff is under the hood. And it's, uh, it's H.R. 347. It passed the House of Representatives with a vote of 388 to 3 in favor. Uh, I know Ron Paul, uh, dissented. I would bet Bernie Sanders probably dissented. The third one, I have no idea who it is. I didn't look it up yet, and I'm not gonna do that today for you. But it also could just be somebody that wasn't there to vote. Uh, a lot of times it's just, you know, the, or, not if this is an 388 to 3, it would just be an abstained vote. Now there's, so there are three people that voted no on this. I'll find out who they are for you. We'll talk about this one again. But it's very concerning, and it would allow them to do things like, Okay, Occupy Wall Street, uh, we don't like you guys there anymore, so we're going to have the Secret Service look after the building that's next door to what you're doing and enforce this. Here's the big one. There are major protests planned for the Republican and Democratic conventions. And if there's one time, whether I agree with what you're protesting or not, that the people of this country should be able to exercise their right to public, uh, public uh, demonstration... It should be as part of the election cycles. Both the Democrat and Republican conventions will be uh, provided with security by the Secret Service, as they should be. But that will make them, under this, so, uh, Secret Service-covered events. It will make protesting on the grounds or adjacent to the grounds illegal and make people not guilty of a misdemeanor and hauled off to jail or sprayed with mace or whatever, guilty of a federal felony just for showing up and protesting. And you want to bet that independent journalists that are there to video it will be targeted and arrested as part of the demonstration, even though they were covering the demonstration. I'll bet you a million to one that happened. So this is one that we, I don't even know what to do about it, because it's already passed the House and the Senate. It was one they shoved right through. You know the ass clown's going to sign it. And I bet you no one in the presidential debate other than Rob Hall even brings it up. And this goes to show you, those of you that that say this, I don't want to waste my vote. I don't want to waste... You know what? You're always wasting your vote when you vote for the establishment. 388 to 3. 388 to 3. They can't agree on cutting spending. They can't agree on putting restrictions on government. They can't even agree on making themselves accountable the same way that we are. But they can agree to turn protesting into a federal felony with a ratio of 388 to 3. Sounds like a lot of people weren't there, um, missing some people there. I guess they didn't bother to show up, they didn't think it was important. Maybe they voted present, who knows. Uh, they have a leader look to to see how to do that. Anyway, with that, I've got things wrapped up for today. I hope it wasn't too much of a downer show, but these are the reasons that we all do need to be prepared. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. a better way.